one thing that we find very quickly as we read through the Bible um, is that motherhood doesn't look like a one-size-fits-all package, that it's not just this is the way it has to be or this is the way that it's going to be, that, uh, that there are mothers of all different ta- types and shapes and sizes, and, uh, and just really motherhood comes in different forms uh, for a lot of folks. For some of you, you may look at those, that video and you may resonate with a Sarah. For some of you, you may resonate with a, a Jochebed. Some of you may uh, resonate with a Naomi. Some of you may even be a Leah, that, that you're just kind of the forgotten one. And uh, wherever you got to or however you arrived at motherhood, whether it's um, spiritual motherhood through mentorship or whether it's physical motherhood through adoption or, or through birth, uh, we want to tell you this morning that we are so thankful for who you are because the role that you play and, and wh- however you are mothering, uh, you are a sacrificial mother. And like the video said, that you're playing an important role and the stories and the realities of faith for generations to come. And uh, there, I realize there are many of us sitting in this room who are not mothers and are never going to be mothers. But if we are truly honest, most of us are here and we have the faith we have because of our mothers. You see, it was our mothers uh, that taught us patience and understanding and they demonstrated Christ unconditional love for us. It was our mothers that sacrificed and demonstrated what sacrifice or sacrificial love looked like. It was it was our mothers who showed us what it looked like to have faith and to live that faith out in each and every moment and every aspect of our life. And so we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 this morning uh, in this kind of hall of fame of faith that we've been talking about for a few weeks. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. We'll start in verse 11 uh, of Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to focus on the one woman uh, who's mentioned in that video and the one woman who as a mother is mentioned by name in this hall of fame of faith and and so this is a beautiful understanding of of how to demonstrate faith and how to live out faith. Now, I realize that Mother's Day is very different for a lot of us. Like I said, many of us are not mothers. We're never going to be mothers. Um, And so we don't understand that. Many of us are sitting here today, and today is honestly a hard day because we don't have a mother that's here with us. Maybe last year she was, and this year she's not. And and I I know that's hard. I've been there, and I understand that. For some of us, I want you to understand that that the text we're going to look at today is We're talking about mothers because it's Mother's Day, but we're not just talking about mothers. There is something in this passage that as we celebrate Sarah and her motherhood, that really her life is going to speak to all of us. All right, So don't look at me and be like, oh, it's all right. It's another Mother's Day sermon. I'm a man. I don't have to listen to this. Okay, Because you're going to miss out on the great blessing uh, that Sarah was as a mother and really what her life can speak to all of us. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, go ahead and read with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Starting in verse 11, you can follow along with me in in your copy of God's Word, uh, or the words will be on the screen beside me. And so Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11 says, By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven, and as innumerous as the grains of sand by the seashore. These all die in faith, or excuse me, these all died in faith without having received the promises. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on earth. Now, those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have an opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared a city 
for them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for today. God, we thank you for the mothers that are in this room who have, who have prioritized this moment. God, we thank you for mothers who are joining us online, who are, are prioritizing this moment. God, we thank you for mothers uh, who stood with their kids and their husbands and their families here just a moment ago. And we thank you for mothers who did that years ago. And God, who are still praying even to this day for the salvation of their children and maybe their grandchildren. God, we thank you for the mothers that you have put in our lives. And we thank you for, uh, God, not just our physical mothers, but our spiritual mothers who have invested and poured into us and showed us what it looks like to be gracious, showed us what it looked like to live sacrificially, showed us what it looked like to have faith and to let that faith change who we are and shape what we believe, Father. And so, God, this morning we celebrate mothers not because of who they are, but because they point us to you. And so, God, as we read through the story of Sarah, as we read and celebrate her life, God, I pray that we're reminded of, of what it looked like to live by faith for her. And, God, I pray not just for the mothers, but for the fathers and, and for everyone in this room and everyone watching online. God, I pray that we are challenged to live out faith just as Sarah did. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In honor of Mother's Day, an author, Christy Jackson, uh, a couple years ago, wrote an article uh, highlighting some of her mother's and grandmother's favorite sayings that really helped shape her life. And if most of us are honest and we think back to our mothers or her grandmothers, we probably have sayings that, that they just repeated over and over and over. Right? And some of you are right now in your head, you're like, yep. I can hear mom saying that. I can hear grandma saying this same thing over and over and over. And so in the article, she listed uh, several of these sayings that, that uh, um, highlighted and helped shape her life. In the article, she wrote that one of her mom's favorite sayings was that time spent reading was time well spent. Right? Now, Christy said that as a kid, she really didn't like that saying. She didn't, she didn't think that was true. And, and so she often made fun of her mom because her mom would have four different books that she was reading at one time. And she'd read one for a while. She'd put it down and pick up another one. And, and she would say, time spent reading is time well spent. And so Christy now finds herself as a librarian. And she says that completely because of her mom's saying, she loves reading and she loves that she now herself can't make fun of her mom anymore because she gets lost in four or five books at the same time. She said another one of her mom's favorites saying when she was a teenager, and I love this one, is the person you date could be the person that you marry. And Christy said that I remember rolling my eyes as a teenager every time my mom would say that when I would bring a boy home and, and be like, no way, this is not somebody I'm going to marry. And, and then she began to think about that and she began to, to kind of process that advice. And looking back, she was definitely thankful for those words and that advice because it made her really kind of think before she chose a boy, a boyfriend that she was going to spend time with. And so today, Christy says that she's happily married to a great husband and she'll quickly tell anyone that the person you're dating doesn't have the qualities and that you want in a husband, then don't waste your time on them. Why? Because the person you date could be the person you marry. And then she goes back a generation, and Christy wrote that one of her, her grandmother's favorite sayings was, dreading is worse than doing. Right? And Christy said that this is the, the saying that makes her do the things that she doesn't want to do when she doesn't want to do them. All right? This is the thing that makes her pick up her pen and start writing. This is the thing that makes her, her get up on Monday morning rather than hitting the snooze button over and over and over. Because we dread things, and, and her grandma kept saying, if you just do it, it's easier. Quit dreading it. The dreading is worse than doing. She says, but finally, in this article, she said her mom's favorite saying, and probably the one that impacted her, her life the most and had the biggest impact was simply this saying, that God is still on the throne. 
And, and that's an easy thing to say when we're sitting at a church service on a Sunday morning on Mother's Day. It's an easy thing to say. And she said, Mom would say that in church on Sunday. Mom would say that when she went to Bible study on Wednesday. She said, but the moment that made this, mean, this saying so meaningful for her was when she was sitting, when her mom was sitting by her mom's de- or deathbed watching her mom die of pancreatic cancer. And the saying she just kept saying was, God is still on the throne. And then she said, as I walked, as I saw my mom, then walk through her own battle with cancer. And the thing she kept repeating to herself after every singer doctor's appointment, after every report came back, is God is still on the throne. She said, when we got the call that my, my dad had fallen off a roof and was in this serious accident, and we didn't know if he was going to make it, and they actually had to airlift him from where he was to the closest trauma center that they could get him to that would be able to treat him. She said, as we stood there watching my dad being lifted off in this helicopter, my mom just repeated, God is still on the throne. And she said, over and over and over, I heard those words in the midst of tragedy and chaos. And she said, it must have sank in at some point. Because I remember when my husband and I walked into the doctor's office together, and we'd been trying to have kids for years and we walked into the doctor's office, and we did all these tests, and the doctor came in, and he said, I've, I've got some bad news for you. Your chance of having a child is pretty much zero. And she said, the first thing that popped into my mind was the saying that my mom used to say, that God is still on the throne. And she says, it didn't make the struggle go away, that even though that we have struggled with infertility, even though we've had these times where this has been hard, that, that she said that we've had this one saying that God is still on the throne. Years later, she wrote, uh, after infertility, she wrote that it is our faith that sustains us during these difficult seasons in our life. The fact that he is still on the throne, that he knows what's best for us, and that he keeps his promises, even when we don't understand them and we don't know what's going on, is what allows us to know that he is the one who's always faithful, even when we are not. You see, I believe this is the thing that she shares in most common with Sarah from the Bible is that they believe in God's faithfulness. And Sarah, like I told you earlier, is the only mother that's mentioned by name in this hall of fame of faith. And it doesn't mean that other mothers weren't, uh, weren't of the same level. It just simply means that for this purpose uh, of writing this, the author only included this one mother. And, and so what makes her stand out as this extreme example of faith is because she believed that God himself was faithful and that she believed that God, when God made a promise, that it was a guarantee to happen. And so for, for many of you, you may be familiar with the story of Abraham and Sarah, and for some of you, you may not be as familiar. But let me just remind you of that story. Abraham and his wife Sarah lived in this place, and, and they, they grew up there their whole life. They were living in the same area, kind of like uh, everybody else did back then. And then one day God spoke to Abraham and, and told Abraham, he said, listen, I'm, I've got this promise for you. I want you to leave your family, leave your land. I want you to go to this other place. And when you do this, when you follow through with your obedience, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. You will have descendants like the stars in the sky, as, as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And, and if you've ever walked on the beach, that's a lot of sand. And, and Abraham is like, oh, this is awesome. This is a great promise. But the problem with that promise is God is making a promise that doesn't come true for a really long time. In fact, God is making a promise when, to a man who's going to have all these great nations. He's going to have all these descendants. And at this time, he's 75 years old, and he doesn't have a kid at all. He has zero 
descendants. And his wife is 65. Sarah is 65. And, and so what makes this promise so amazing is what the writer of Hebrews points out to us in verse 11. It's not just this promise of lots of children and lots of descendants. What makes this promise amazing is verse 11. It says, by faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring. Get this, even though she was past the age, since she considered the one who had promised was faithful. When God made this promise, I told you this, when God made this promise, Abraham was 75 and Sarah was 65 years old. And there's this promise that you are going to be the parents of this great nation. That you're going to have descendants that you can't even count, that you can't even number. Now I wanted to share something with you. This is the promise. And even Sarah, even in our modern technology today, there's not a 65-year-old lady who's had a child naturally. All right, It just hasn't happened naturally. There's been some other things that have happened. But even, at, even in all our modern medicine and all the other stuff, this doesn't happen. But here's the amazing thing. It's easy to say we trust in a promise when the promise has an immediate fulfillment. But it's a different story when it's long in its fulfillment. You see, some of us, we, I don't like to go shopping. I, in fact, I hate to go shopping. But one of my favorite places to go shopping when I have to do it is either Sam's or Costco. All right? I don't know why those are my favorite, except that like, there's those middle aisles that changes all the time. So it's like a variety in there. And plus, I can buy really big stuff. Right? And I just feel like I'm getting a good deal. I don't know if I am or not, but I feel like. And so one of the things I've noticed about walking through Sam's or Costco is that they have what they call these instant rebates. Okay, I don't know if you've ever noticed this on the signs, but it'll have the price of an item and it'll say instant rebate minus five dollars or minus ten dollars. And then here's the new price. For some reason, in my mind, like that's a great let's do this because you promised me that this is a rebate that I'm going to get money back. Right. And, and I, this is an instant fulfillment that as soon as I get this thing and I get to the checkout, either the checker is going to take the, the, the amount of money off of it. And so I'm going to get that money back. But it's an instantaneous thing. Right. Now, some of you may be familiar with that. Some of you are Costco and Sam shoppers, and you've seen the instant rebate. Some of you may not be familiar with that, but you may be familiar with the other type of rebate. And some of us are old enough to remember these things called mail-in rebates. And a mail-in rebate worked like this for you young kids that don't know this. A mail-in rebate worked like this, that you bought an item at a certain price, right? And then there was this promise that was made to you that if you bought this item at, at the full price, then you would mail in your proof of purchase, you mailed in your receipt, you mailed in the serial number, you mailed in your firstborn child sometimes, and sometime in the next six to eight weeks, you were promised to get part of that money back. And so for some of us, that promise may be a little harder to believe, right? Because it's not an instantaneous thing. Like we didn't walk up and as soon as we got to the cash register, they took that off. We didn't get that money back in our pocket. We had to wait for that. And so for many of us, we, we kind of we lost the, the, the fulfillment of that promise. Some of us even forgot about it. Some of us didn't think about it. But let me ask you, how truthful or how, how concerning would it be if you got a promise that had no end date in time? What, what if you, you saw this sign that said mail-in rebate, send in all of this stuff, and at some point we'll send you this money back? Who's ready to sign up for that one? What, what if it wasn't a six to eight week? What if it wasn't a six to ten week deadline? What if there was no deadline to the promise? They just said, hey, listen, do this, buy this, and, and send all this stuff. And at some point, you're going to get money back. And so let's say that you actually bought into this and you, you did this. You sent all this stuff in. You made sure it was all there. And let's say three months go by. How confident are you in three months that you're actually going to get that money back? 
how, about, how confident if it goes to six months? Let's take it out to a year. Now, you're a year out from buying this stuff and making this, this purchase and getting all this stuff. Now it's been a full year. How confident are you in the promise that was made that you're still going to get that money back? Most of us would probably have lost it by that point. We would have just either forgot about it. Now, let's take it even worse. What if that promise lasted five years or ten years or even longer? What if you had to wait 24 years before you even saw a sign of that promise? You see, Sarah got the promise when she was 65 years old. She was already too old to have children then. But at 65, she got this promise. Her husband was 75, and they got this promise. And 24 years passed with no sign that the promise was going to happen. She didn't get pregnant the next month. She didn't get pregnant the next year. She didn't get pregnant in the next five years. 24 years before she sees the sign that she is pregnant. By this time, she is 89 years old, and she's still trusting the promise that she's going to have a child. But I want you to notice why she has this. I want you to notice that her faith is not in her ability to have a child. That time is long past. That ability is long past. And her faith, honestly, is not even in seeing what God is doing. You see, some of us will have faith when we can see what what God is doing around us. But I can imagine that Sarah wasn't looking around and thinking, wow, I'm the only 89-year-old not having kids. Like, she didn't see a whole group of 89-year-old women having kids and be like, oh, if God can do that for them, then he can do that for me. No, she wasn't surrounded by these group of women who were miraculously having kids. She didn't see that. In fact, I imagine there probably weren't even stories of women who were this age that were having kids. And so her, her faith and her assurance and her confidence doesn't come in what she sees God doing in and around her. She, it's not from the circumstances. It's not what he's doing in other people. Her faith and her assurance rest solely on one thing. It rests solely on the characteristic of God that she considers the one that God has made the promise was faithful. You see, her faith was based on the fact that God keeps his promises. It is his characteristic. He, is, he has integrity. When God, who cannot lie, makes a promise, that promise is going to happen. And it may not happen in a month. It may not happen in a year. It may not happen in five years. But when God makes a promise, his integrity makes it happen. And so her confidence and our confidence and assurance rests not in our abilities and not in our circumstances, not what we see other people doing or thinking, but solely in the honesty and the purity of God's faithfulness. We trust that God cannot and will not lie to us. And so I heard this conversation while we, while we were singing, and I was back here praying about this, this idea of the battle belonging being a Mother's Day song. You know, the reason we sing that song is because we have the assurance, not in our abilities to fight, but we have this assurance that God says he will fight for us. You see, when Scripture tells us to put on the armor of God, I don't know if you know that passage of Scripture, but it tells us to put on, it tells us all this armor to put on, and then you know what it tells us to do? Stand. Nowhere does it tell us in Scripture to put on the armor and go fight. Why? Because the battle doesn't belong to us. It tells us to put on the armor and stand and let God do the fighting for us. So the reason that we have the assurance and confidence to sing the battle belongs to God is because he told us the battle is his. Because he told us that he will be victorious. Because he showed it to us. And so we trust that when God makes a promise, it's going to happen. And so when we trust that promise, we receive the power of that promise. And so Sarah's job is not to make the promise happen. Our job is not make the promise happen. Our job is simply to trust that God is faithful and he's true when his word is true and we simply trust 
that the promise happens. And when we see and when we do that, we begin to see the results of trusting in the promise. In verse 12, he shows us the results for Sarah. In verse 12, it says, Therefore, from one man, in fact, one as good as dead, a.k.a. he was too old to have children, came offsprings as numerous as the stars of heaven and as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore. What did they get? Exactly what God had promised. And Sarah's faith had an impact on millions and millions of people around the world. In fact, billions of people around the world. Her faith impacted more lives than she could probably ever imagine. And so what's interesting is because she became so entrapped in this idea that God's going to give me a child. God's going to give me a child. And sometimes she didn't think ahead that not only is he going to give me a child, but this we're going to give a blessing to the world. You see, it's through the descendants of Abraham that we have. Christ. It's through the descendants of Abraham and Sarah that we have a Messiah who came and lived for us and died for us. You see, a mother's faith believes that God is faithful even when there's not signs, even when we don't feel it, and even when it's not dependent on us. See, the assurance of God's faithfulness is what allows mothers and really all of us to say, you know what, it's okay if we're a little different than everybody else that's around us. One of my favorite things to do when I was a kid, I'd get to go spend time at my grandma's house. And uh, my grandmother, um, she, she had this very strict regimen. We got up very early. We went and we worked in the garden. And then we came back. And, and then we got to spend lunchtime there at her house. And then we went back to the garden and worked in the evening. Right? And so when you got that, that small break in the middle of your day, you got to watch TV. And that was like the most awesome thing to watch TV because Granny had cable. All right, uh, We didn't have cable in my house, but Granny had cable. And so one of my favorite things to do was that we got to watch reruns of the Beverly Hillbillies. All right? Now, some of you don't even know the Beverly Hillbillies, and I'm sorry that your childhood was deprived. Okay, You need to go back and watch them on YouTube. Go watch the, the black and white ones, or my kids call them back in the gray days. Okay, um, Because they were reruns even for me, but I love the Beverly Hillbillies. And, and the Beverly Beverly Hillbillies was this show about this family who grew up in the mountains, and, and old Jed, he went out shooting for rabbits, and he discovered oil. And, and so, the, come to find out, there was a huge oil reserve on their family land, and so he sold the, the drilling rights, and they moved to Beverly Hills. Now, if you've seen the show, you realize that a group of hillbillies that grew up in the mountains moved to Beverly Hills. They are very different, okay? They don't look like the people around them. They don't act like the people around them. They can't even figure out some of the things that are in their own house without the people around them trying to figure them out and show them. And, and so the people on the outside of the Beverly Hills are looking at them like, man, you guys are just, you're different. Like, you're just strange. And meanwhile, the Beverly Hillbillies are like, you guys are weird. Like, y'all are just strange. Like, why, why do you have this concrete pond in your backyard and no fishing rods? We just don't understand this kind of thing. And so, to a little bit a lesser extent, I kind of picture that's how Abraham and Sarah were when they followed God's uh, call to move from one place to another. Not that they're the Beverly Hillbillies, but I want you to imagine they had lived their entire lives in one area surrounded by their family. And that's the way that almost all families did in those days. You lived with your family, and if your family decided to, to move because of, of herds or whatever, your whole family moved together. And so you really lived your entire life with your extended family. And all of a sudden, God tells them, hey, move from here to there. And by the way, don't take your family with you. Just leave them behind. And so some of you have grown up, you've been this way. I grew up in the same house my whole life. And, and there were things that my family did that I thought was normal that I didn't realize was not normal until I got married and entered into a new family. For example, I thought every family ate dinner at 9 o'clock at night because that's what we did. And then I got married and my wife's like, why are we not eating dinner? I'm like, because it's not dark and, and it's not 9 o'clock yet. She's like, normal people eat at 5.30. And I was like, oh, 
Okay, we just thought that was normal, all right? And so there's certain customs, there's certain traditions that your family has that, that maybe nobody else has, all right? And so I want you to imagine that if you moved from here to somewhere else, that you would probably take those traditions with you. Now imagine that's what Abraham and Sarah did, that they were in one place, and when they moved, they took their traditions, they took their customs, they took what they normally did and how they normally did things, they took them with them. And so then all of a sudden they find themselves in this new place, and they find this place in this new land where God showed them, He told them, and when they start to look around, they start to notice that they don't, they don't really look and act like the neighbors do. In fact, in verse 13, the writer of Hebrews points this out for us. In verse 13, he points out, and he's not just talking about Sarah. He kind of draws back and includes Sarah and Abraham and really all the people he's talked about up until this point. Uh, but in verse 13, it says, These all died in faith without having received the promise. So Abraham never saw the nation that was to become the blessing to the world. He saw a descendant, and he saw a grandchild, but he never saw this great nation. So they didn't receive the full promise, right? But... They saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed, get this, that they were foreigners and temporary residents on earth. So Abraham and Sarah started looking around. They realized that, that we, don't, we don't look the same as our neighbors. We don't act the same as our neighbors. That, that, listen, that our neighbors have these whole set of gods that they made out of stones, they made out of sticks, and, and that's, that's not us. We don't have those gods. We have this one God who told us to go, and so we went. And, and so we, we worship differently than they do, and, and we don't act the same way they do. They have a different lifestyle. They accept the different practices, and, and we don't do those things. And really, this is the beauty. Instead of trying to blend in and being part of the crowd, I want you to notice what it says. They confessed that they were foreigners, and they were temporary residents. And I love this word, confess. Because in this context, it's a beautiful word. And what it means is, is simply it means to say the same thing as someone else, to agree with someone. And so what this really means in this context is the neighbors were looking at Abraham and Sarah and be like, you guys are weird. Y'all are different than us. And so what did Abraham and Sarah do? They agreed. You're right. We are different than you. right? And different isn't bad. In our case, right? And, and so they're not embarrassed by the fact they're different. They're, they don't try to blend in. They don't try to merge in and, and, and kind of blend their cultures together. They are proud that they stand out. They are proud that they live by a different standard and they serve a different God. They are proud that they live differently than the people around them. And so I want you to hear me this morning. This is an encouragement and a challenge for all of us who are people of faith and especially mothers of faith this morning. If we're going to live by faith then we honestly have to be okay with being different than those that are around us because the world around us doesn't worship the same God and have the same set of standards that we do. If we're going to be okay, if we're going to live by faith, then we have to be okay by living by a different set of standards than the rest of the world around us. We have to be okay by saying no to things that the world's going to say yes to. We have to be okay with saying yes to things that the rest of the world is going to say no to. And so listen to me. Some of you as mothers, you're going to need this encouragement that Abraham and Sarah both felt the same way that you did. They had to say no to things that the rest of the world said was okay, and they had to say yes to things that the rest of the world said, no, no, that's weird, that's different, you shouldn't do it that way. Let me give you this example, not from Scripture, but let's say that you've got a daughter, and one day your daughter walks up to you, and she's 16, 17 years old, and she walks up, and she says, hey, I've decided that I'm going to go spend the night at my boyfriend's house tonight, and I'll see you tomorrow morning. I hear some dads groaning already, all right? It's Mother's Day, all right? Let me talk to moms for just a moment. And you as a mom, or maybe you as a dad, whoever, you're going to look at your daughter and be like, mm, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think that's going to be the way this works out. And you know the exact response? I can go ahead and tell you. 
well, so-and-so lets their daughter do it. Why can't I? Right? I see some looks right now. You're like, yep, heard that. Right? Do you know what we, we, are, we don't even have teenage kids, but do you know what our response is? We don't care what so-and-so's parents do. We're not so-and-so's parents. And if we were, they wouldn't be doing that either. Right? What we're telling our kids is that we have a different standard that we judge by. We have a different standard that we live by. And not that we judge other people by, but that we know that we are judged by a different standard because we are judged by the standard that God lays out for us. And so, listen to me. It is perfectly fine to look at your kid and say, listen, I'm not the parent of this other kid. It's perfectly fine to look at them and say, listen, I don't answer for them or the decisions that are made in their house. You are my responsibility. And this is the standard and this is the lifestyle that we agree that we are going to live. And so it's perfectly fine to live like nobody else in your neighborhood or in your community. Listen, just because everybody else lets their kids watch a certain thing or buy a certain thing or have a certain thing or go certain places or be with certain people after a certain time, it doesn't mean that you have to. Listen, the more we are mothers and fathers of faith, the more that we are going to be foreigners in a society that surrounds us because we realize that we are only temporary residents here. In fact, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 reminds us this world is not our home. In fact, he tells us, but our citizenship is in heaven, which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want you to hear me this morning. Be encouraged by the fact that your kid is going to make you try to feel like you're the only parent that doesn't let them do certain things. And the reality is that is not true. There are other parents who are residents and there are other parents who are foreigners who are doing the exact same thing you are. And so your simple response can be, I don't care what so-and-so does. They're not my responsibility. And I want to share with you the encouragement of this passage is that years later, your kids will come back to you. And I promise you, it may take a really long time. This is one of those unending, or not, there's not a deadline, this promise. But there will be a time when your kid can come back to you and say, listen, I really appreciate the times you told me no. I really appreciate it when you set a standard for me that was higher than anybody else. And I tell you that because I taught high school for years. And I tell you that because I taught at a high school that we had a good population of our kids came from a children's home who didn't have parents that told them no. And one of them looked at me straight in the face and said, after another kid was complaining about what her parents wouldn't let her do, and her, her, she looked at me and she said, I just wish I had parents that loved me enough to tell me no about certain stuff. Listen, we have to be okay with being different than what this world says and what this world says is okay. So there's encouragement that you're not the only one, but there's also this challenge to let's be mothers and fathers of faith. Let's be bold enough and have enough faith in God that sets this standard that we live by and we raise our family by rather than letting those around us set this standard. Let's have enough faith in Him to be different enough that people notice. And get this, when people do notice the difference, don't shy away from it. Confess it. Look at it and be like, you guys are weird. Guess what? We're okay with being weird because we live for God, because we are not of this world, because we are foreigners and we're temporary residents here and our citizenship is in heaven. And we confess, we know that we're different and we're okay with it. Why? Because at the end of our lives, we've got one place that we're looking forward to and it's not here. You see, when we live by faith, we learn that we have to live looking forward and not backwards, looking to days and things that are ahead rather than our past and really looking to what God has planned for our future rather than what God has or what is determined and chained to our past. You see, the writer of Hebrews, he goes on to talk about Abraham and Sarah, and he says in verse 14 that they're looking for something better. In verse 14, he puts it this way. He says, now those who say such things, those who confess their foreigners, they're looking 
or make it clear that they're looking, they're searching for a homeland, they're seeking a homeland, right? They're seeking a place to call home, and they're looking for a place to settle down. They're looking for a place of peace. They're looking for a, a stable, structured life. Security and assurance is what they're looking for. And as you look at this story, there's a lot of people say, well, you know, that you had that. You had that back over there. You decided to leave it. You had security. You had family. You had safety. You had assurance. All that was over there. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling us and telling them is, yeah, they could have went back there. In fact, in verse 15, he makes it pretty clear. They had that option. If they wanted to go back, they could have. And in verse 15, he says, if they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. Right? So, so, yeah, you could go back there. But I want you to notice that the assurance that you thought was there is not the assurance that's there because that assurance is from people. And what you have now is an assurance from God. And that's a very different thing. In fact, he goes on in verse 16. He says, but they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. So it makes it clear they could have gone back, but they chose not to. Al Mohler, the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary, puts it this way. He says, the people of God don't look backwards. They look forward because they're absolutely convinced that God's promises are are true. You see, faith is this assurance that God's promises are forward and not backwards. He, he will never get, we will never get to where God wants us to go if we're always looking back to where he called us out of in the first place. Let me put it to you this way. There are some of us sitting in this room and watching online that God has called you out of a place of anxiety and depression. He's called you into an abundant life of joy and contentment. For some of us sitting here, God has called you out of a life of an addiction only to find satisfaction in him alone. For some of us, you're sitting in here, and God has called you out of this life of regret and shame and all these past mistakes, and he's called you into this place where there is no condemnation for you, there's no judgment for you, that all that past is wiped away. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that you're never going to go, or you've got an opportunity to go back there if you want to, but you've got something better waiting for you forward. Don't go back to the past mistakes and the regrets. Don't go back and live in a place that God has called you out of. You'll never get to where God is wanting you to be if you keep going back. Listen, I talk to a lot of moms who, who have a lot of regrets. I wish I could have done this. I wish I would have done this different. I, I wish I wouldn't have handled this like that. Listen, God has called you out of a place of regret. God has called you out of a place of mistakes. Even Sarah herself was not a perfect mother. She knew it and she had moments that she wasn't proud of. But rather than dwelling in those past mistakes and those past regrets, she chose to live this life of promise that was ahead of her instead of this life that was behind her. And so I want to share with you what Scripture is telling you this morning is stop looking back at the place that God has called you out of and start looking at the place that God has called you to. Stop looking at those sins that God has forgotten and look at the glory that he's got for you. Stop looking at the, the pain and the regrets you have in the past and start looking for the place that he's prepared for you in the future. You can't change your past or where you come from, but I want you to hear this. It doesn't determine where you are going. Only God does that. Life, a life of faith is the one that seeks after God and the one that gives him the direction over your life. It's a life of faith is one that desires to please him. And this is the last thing that Sarah's life teaches us, that our faith is always looking to please God. I want you to look at this last verse with me. Verse 16, we'll close with this. It says, Therefore, because Sarah and Abraham were obedient, because they lived by faith, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. David Gusick, another uh, writer that I read pretty often, he says this. He says, we often consider an idea that we should not be ashamed of God. But we must also consider that we may make God ashamed of us. When we do not regard God in heaven and eternity as real, 
then there's a sense in which God is ashamed to be called our God. In essence, what he's saying is when we live a life where our faith is professed with our mouth but doesn't impact our life, then God is ashamed to be called our God. There's a lot of us who brought shame to the name of God because we said we believe it and then we didn't live like it. That our faith in Him and our faith in heaven and eternity didn't shape the way that we viewed this world. It didn't shape the way that we lived our life. And it really didn't shape the way that we did anything. And so you see this life of faith as a life that seeks to please God, that, that, one, that, that makes Him proud of us. And so for mothers of faith and for us who are fathers of faith and for us who are people of faith, it means that we seek Him first. It means that we live according to the standard that He set for us and our family. And it means that we trust Him to keep His promises even when it doesn't look like it's possible. You see, for us around us and for us or for those that are around us, it means that we're going to be a little different. It means that we're going to live by faith and not by sight. And it means that even if we have to wait for a really long time, we trust that the God who made a promise is always going to follow through with it. Let's pray together.